victory often comes from unlikely places and in unlikely ways. That's why we all love a good underdog story, right? And I heard an interesting underdog story this week. Maybe you know it. In 1995, a fairly unimpressive high school quarterback named Tom led an unimpressive high school football team to an unimpressive 6-4 record. Underdog Tom, with a record like that, had to fight to even be noticed by colleges. He ended up riding the bench and getting caught in inter-team disputes for most of his college football career. Underdog Tom was barely drafted into the NFL as a sixth-round draft pick. And a few weeks ago, this unimpressive kid from California won the Super Bowl for the seventh time. His name is Tom Brady, and for some reason that I can't quite figure out, everyone hates him for some reason. Uh, so Tom Brady wasn't always considered the greatest quarterback of all time. He really has been the underdog for most of his life, but he rose from rejection to being widely considered one of the greatest players to ever touch a football. And Tom Brady's story is a reminder that incredible victory often comes from unlikely places. Incredible victory often comes from unlikely places and in unlikely ways. And today we're going to see how the greatest victory in all of history, namely the conquest of Jesus Christ over Satan, sin, and death, came about in an even more unlikely way. So the main idea that I want to drive home to you today as we spend time in John chapter 12 is that Christ will certainly be rejected by the world, but he will always accomplish his purposes. Christ will always be rejected by the world, but he will certainly accomplish his purposes. Typically in the Bible and in the world, the moments when it seems like God has lost, he's actually about to seize a greater victory because he will always accomplish his purposes. In our passage today, in, in John chapter 12, we'll see Christ rejected by the crowds. And that's a set of circumstances that will eventually lead to his murder. But know that while Christ will always be rejected by the world, he will always accomplish his purposes. Christ will certainly be rejected by the world, but he will always accomplish his purposes. And we see a similar scene in the world around us today. We see countless people reject Christ. We see a culture that is hostile against him and hostile to his word. And usually when we share this good news about Christ, people respond with simple indifference. They couldn't care less. But know that while Christ will certainly be rejected by the world, he will always accomplish his purposes. We're going to see this main idea unfold by looking at a chain of four events. Four events with one leading to the next. Number one, Christ rejected. Number two, Christ crucified. Number three, Christ glorified. And number four, Christ believed. But first, let's read the passage together. John chapter 12, verses 37 to 50. We're going to read it. 
We're going to pray, and then we're just going to walk through the passage and point some things out together. John chapter 12, verses 37 to 50. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but to the Father, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. We pray that you would bless the reading of it this morning. We pray, God, that you would give us insight and wisdom to understand your word, to apply your word. We pray that you would give us soft hearts and open eyes to behold wondrous things as we see this glorious picture of your son who will certainly be rejected by the world but who will always accomplish his purposes. God, we pray that you would accomplish your purposes here this morning. We pray that lives would be transformed. We pray that sin would be repented of. We pray that unbelief would be dropped to the floor. We pray, God, that people would surrender their lives to make your name known around the world. We pray that you would do that today. We know that you will always accomplish your purposes, and we pray that you would do that today. We pray that you would glorify your son today. And it's for his name that we pray. Amen. Christ will certainly be rejected by the world, but he will always accomplish his purposes. We'll see this reality play out over the course of four events with one leading to the next. Number one, Christ rejected. In Jesus' day and our own, People are blind to his true identity. In Jesus' day and our own, people are blind to his true identity. Our passage this morning comes at a very crucial point in the gospel according to John. Maybe you've caught up on this as we've studied the gospel of John together over the last few months. But John's gospel is usually divided up into two major sections. 
Chapters 1 through 12, often called the Book of Signs, depict these incredible scenes of Christ revealing his identity as the Son of God who came to rule and reign over all the nations of the earth and save a people for himself. And Christ reveals that identity by doing a series of miraculous signs or wonders or miracles. These signs are like signposts that are pointing out who he really is. So that's chapters 1 through 12. And then chapters 13 through 21 has been traditionally called the book of glory. And that, those chapters depict Christ's final day where he teaches his disciples and reveals his glory to them. And then he reveals his glory to the world as he's lifted up on a cross to suffer and die, only to be resurrected from the dead three days later. The book of signs chapters 1 through 12, and the book of glory, chapters 13 through 21. And so our passage this morning is the conclusion of the first major section in John's gospel. So over the last few months, we've studied this book together. And, and if you're just joining us in the middle of that study, let me catch you up on what we've seen so far. For 12 glorious chapters, 586 verses, we have seen Jesus do some incredible things things. We've seen him turn water into wine. We've seen him heal a sick boy. We've seen him make a lame man walk. We've seen him feed a stadium of people with just a little boy's lunch. We've seen him walk across stormy waters without breaking a sweat. We've seen him give sight to a man who was born blind. And most astoundingly, we've even seen him raise his friend from the dead. Absolutely astounding. And now we're reaching the climax of this section of John's gospel, so it ought to be an exciting conclusion, right? Well, after all these astounding signs, the end of the book is actually a bit of a letdown. The, 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 the passage today starts that way. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The crowds did not believe in Jesus. Christ will certainly be rejected by the world, but he will always accomplish his purposes. Christ will certainly be rejected by the world, and he certainly was in his own day. And I want you to notice that that's not because of any deficiency in Jesus. Note that this verse makes clear that he had done so many signs before them. So why didn't the crowds believe if it wasn't anything wrong with Jesus? Well, the passage goes on to explain in verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. That phrase, so that, is always important in your Bible. Whenever you see it, you should stop and make note of what it's doing. It shows the reason that something took place. In this case, why didn't the crowds believe? They didn't believe so that the prophecy of Isaiah could be fulfilled. The prophet Isaiah prophesied more than 500 years before Christ was born, and he knew that this was how the Lord would be treated. The response to Jesus' ministry of unbelief was predicted by God before it ever took place. Unbelief is not a shock to God's plan. 
in an upside-down seeming kind of way, it actually is God's plan. Because even though Christ will certainly be rejected by the world, he will always accomplish his purposes. He will fulfill his word. He will complete his plan. And so what is this quote from Isaiah, and what on earth does it have to do with the crowds rejecting Jesus? And what does it have to do with our lives today? Let's read it again from John 12, 38. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That expression, the arm of the Lord, is a common expression throughout the writings of Isaiah. Think about it like an arm reaching out to pull you up out of the waters of sin before you drown. It's God's arm of salvation reaching to save people like us. And so John's referencing this verse to say that the reasons the crowds didn't believe in Christ is because God hadn't revealed the truth about them. The reason they didn't grasp God's saving hand to get pulled up out of the waters is because God hadn't extended his saving reach to them. And he goes on to make the same point with another quote from Isaiah. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. It's the same reality. Why didn't the crowds believe in Jesus? Because they were blinded by sin, and God didn't open their eyes. And this is actually a vicious cycle, because these verses from Isaiah speak of God blinding eyes and hardening hearts. As a punishment for rejecting Christ, God gives even more blindness and more hardness. That's not just somebody's opinion. This is God's word. Non-Christians aren't just misled or uninformed. They are dead and blind. They cannot see the beauties of Christ and love him. They cannot see the trustworthiness of Christ and trust him. What non-Christians need is not merely more information. What they need is heart transformation. What each of us need, or at least one they needed, was not merely information, but heart transformation. Someone can understand everything about God and his word in their head, but not submit to Christ in repentance and faith, because their eyes are blind. And only God can open them. Because their hearts are hard, and only God can soften them. And that means that God is in control of the whole thing. We've seen this play out again and again in John's gospel. The people that he has chosen will receive new hearts, will believe in Christ, and will be saved. God will certainly always accomplish his purposes. And God could do this in anyone he wants. He could change even the hardest hearts because his power is not limited. But he doesn't do that. And it's not because he isn't powerful enough or strong enough or beautiful enough to convince anyone to love him, but because his plan is that Christ would certainly be rejected by the world, but he will always accomplish his purposes. So why did the crowds reject Christ? Because their eyes were blinded by sin and God did not open them because their hearts were hardened in sin and God did not soften them so that they loved Christ. 
but what's the big deal? Like, why does it matter so much how these people responded to some other guy, Christ? Well, the passage goes on to make an interesting comment. John summarizes these two verses from Isaiah in verse 41. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw whose glory? He saw the Lord Jesus' glory. So what, what John is saying is that Isaiah was given a vision of Christ. Before, 500 years before Christ ever came to the earth, Isaiah was given a vision of Christ, and he wrote down what he saw for us to read today. Now, John's original readers in the first century would have known the writings of Isaiah backwards and forwards. When he quoted one phrase from Isaiah to them, they would have immediately known what was around it, and they would have immediately been thinking about what the context means. So earlier, Kendall did a spoken word for us, and she said, I pledge allegiance to the flag, and your brain probably auto-completed, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible. Like, you, your brain just automatically knows what comes next, because that's so ingrained in our hearts and our culture. And, and the same thing would, would have been true about John's original readers and the writings of Isaiah. They would have immediately known what was around any quotation from Isaiah. They would have been, been immediately thinking about what the original context means. And, and so if we're really going to get to the point of what John is saying in this passage, we have to look at the context of the verses that he's quoting from Isaiah. So in John 12:40, John quotes from Isaiah 6. And John 12, 41, like we said, suggests that that chapter is all about the glories of Christ. So here's how Isaiah chapter 6 describes the Lord Jesus Christ. It's astounding. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The Jesus who was rejected by the crowds is not just some obscure peasant or crazy prophet. He is the eternal son of God. And he sits on a throne over all of the universe that he has created. He sits on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. He's so amazing, so majestic that his robe fills the entire room. His glory and wonder and majesty is completely inescapable. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim, that's a kind of angel. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So that's a pretty cool creature, right? If I saw that thing, I'd probably like freak out. But these scary creature angel things are even more fearful of the one who sits on the throne. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These glorious angels are obsessed with singing the praises of the more glorious one who sits on the throne. And they're constantly screaming about how wonderfully glorious and perfect he is. They sing holy, 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 meaning that he is unlike anything or anyone else because he is perfect in beauty and he's perfect in purity. He is holy, holy, holy. And how, what, what does this king do? What does he do from the throne? Verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. His word has power. His word has authority because he is a mighty king. And Isaiah responds. 
in verse 5. He sees this glorious king and he responds, verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the glory of the king, the Lord of hosts. This king speaks with authority, and before him we are nothing. Like Isaiah, we have no righteousness to speak of before the holy, 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 mighty king. When we see his holiness, we realize how unholy we are. And there is no fig leaf that you could possibly hold up to hide behind. Our shame is completely exposed before this holy, holy, holy God. Friends, we will all one day come face to face with this great God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejecting him is no small thing because he sits on a throne ruling over all creation. And yet rejection is so common. In Jesus' day and our own, people are blind to Jesus' true identity. It can be tempting to despair when we see the people around us act with hostility or even indifference when we tell them about Christ. It can be tempting to despair when we see the culture around us reject Christ and his ways and live for something inferior. But friends, do not despair because Christ will certainly be rejected by the world, but he will always accomplish his purposes. Nothing can stop God's plan. And things actually get a whole lot worse before they get any better. This leads to our second event. Christ rejected leads to Christ crucified. And that's a disclaimer. That is the longest point. Some of you are looking at your watches. I promise we'll get out of here by lunchtime. Christ crucified, number two. The crowds that rejected Jesus ultimately took his life. From the world's perspective, it would have looked like that was the end of Christ's mission. It was over and hope was lost. But this was actually God's plan from the very beginning. That his son would be rejected and ultimately be crucified and killed. Christ will certainly be rejected by the world, but he will always accomplish his purposes. Now that's a funny kind of plan. How do we know that God thought of all this before it happened and he wasn't just kind of adjusting as he went, like, oh, son died, that sucks, probably raise him from the dead or something. No, this was always his plan. And I'm not just saying that, it's also revealed in the writings of the prophet Isaiah, written more than 500 years before Christ ever walked the earth. We already looked at Isaiah chapter 6, which is quoted in John 12, 40. Now I want to look with you at Isaiah chapter 53, which John quotes in verse 38. He says there, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The verse that John's quoting there is Isaiah 53.1. And Isaiah 53.1 is a part of a song. Specifically, throughout the second half of Isaiah's writings, there's four servant songs, is what they've come to be called. 
And they're, they're called servant songs because they're glorious poems about a mighty servant of God who would rise up from the people of God and he would rule and reign over them as their king, but he would also suffer for them to save them from their sins. He's the servant of the Lord. And, and John is saying that the Lord Jesus is that great servant of the Lord. I want to read a longer portion of that song to you now from Isaiah chapter 53. And as I, as I read, I want you to listen for two things. First of all, the rejection of Christ, like we just talked about, and also the sufferings of Christ. Listen to how Isaiah describes those two themes. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. The holy, holy, holy Lord Jesus did not look very impressive on the earth. That's why salvation has to be revealed by God. It can't just be figured out. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Christ suffered a slow, horrible, excruciating, shameful death on the cross. And the scene was so horrendous and disgusting that men hid their faces. They couldn't look at him. He was so disfigured. He was a man of sorrows. And why did he do all that? Why did the all-powerful Christ, the holy, holy, holy Lord, willingly subject himself to this? For us. It goes on to describe, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions. Why was Christ nailed to the cross? For your sin and for my sin. He was crushed for our iniquity. Why was Christ's body whipped and brutally shaken apart? For your sins, for my sins. Why did God allow all this to happen? For your sin and my sin. The holy, holy, holy Lord, before whom we have no pretense and no place to hide, the one who sees all of our sin and wrongdoing, loves you that much. Because when he died, he was not being punished for his crimes. He had none. He was being punished for our crimes. 
And as we'll see as we continue to walk through the passage, we will see that because of what he did on the cross, any one of us can be forgiven of our sins by looking to him and trusting in him and being saved because he did not stay in the grave. He rose victoriously after three days. But that's the end of the story, and we're getting ahead of ourselves. Right now, we're we're seeing this scene of Christ crucified. Christ dead and buried. The hero has lost. The Savior was silenced. The King was vanquished. But like we said, all hope was not lost. This surprising turn of events was not a surprise to God. Remember, this was all written about 500 years before Christ came. The cross was not an interruption to God's plan. It was God's plan. And it will always be God's plan. God will never improve on this because there is no room for improvement. His plan has always been that Christ will certainly be rejected by the world, but he will always accomplish his purposes. Christ had to be rejected by the crowds because that would lead to the cross where he suffered to save sinners. And this suffering in a surprising way leads to our third event. Christ rejected leads to Christ crucified. And Christ crucified leads to number three, Christ glorified. Christ's crucifixion was not the end of his story. In fact, Christ's crucifixion is the vehicle by which his name will be glorified among all the nations of the earth. Remember that Isaiah 52 and 53 is a song. And so we should expect Isaiah to use some poetic elements as we study this. And earlier I just read the middle of that song, which describes Christ's suffering. But now we want to look at the beginning and the end of that song, which describes Christ's glorious victory. You see, Isaiah leads and ends with Christ's victory by by starting with it and ending with it. He wants to make it abundantly clear that the cross was not the end of Jesus because he has conquered death and rose victoriously and is now being glorified among the nations. So let's read together now the beginning and the end of this majestic song, starting in Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths before him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Let's jump down to the end of the song. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. Do you see the contrasts here in those verses? The grieved one sees his offspring again. The crushed one lives a long life. His days are prolonged. The defeated one prospers. The one in anguish is satisfied. The suffering one receives glory. Christ's suffering leads to his glory because at the cross, he bore the sins of many. He took our sin onto himself. He was gathering people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He was expanding his family, expanding his kingdom, bringing subjects under his reign, bringing children into his family. Christ's suffering leads to his glory. And that theme is found all over the Bible, the theme of suffering leading to glory. Let me give you a few examples right now. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. And being found in human form, this is talking about the Lord Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So why is Christ exalted highly above every name? Because he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Suffering leads to glory. It comes up again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. The prophets, people like Isaiah, inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The glories that would follow. Suffering leads to glory. We even saw it last week. Earlier in John chapter 12, there were some Greeks, some non-Jewish people who wanted to see Jesus. And his disciples were like, I don't know, is that allowed? It's never happened before. So they go to Jesus and they ask him, Jesus, is this allowed? Like, are these Greek people allowed to come see you? And Jesus gave a very puzzling answer that we saw last week in John 12, 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. For Christ to be worshipped by the Greeks, the nations, he has to be glorified. And for him to be glorified, he has to die. And when he dies, he will bear much fruit fruit. Suffering leads to glory. And that's the thing. Christ died and he rose again in victory. Death could not hold him. The most formidable enemy that any of us will ever meet is death itself. And Christ Jesus stomped it out. Christ Jesus looked like he had lost the battle. But while Christ will be rejected by the world, he will always accomplish his purposes, and he triumphed over death. And friends, he is still alive today. He is still ruling and reigning as the exalted king of the universe, high and lifted up. Not even death could hold him. And if you are his, then death has no claim on you because you've got a better king who triumphed over death. 
And Christ did all that so that he could be worshipped by his people. But that's not just by people that look like us. Who came to see Jesus in John chapter 12? Was it the Jewish people that he'd been talking to this whole time? No, it was the Greeks. It was people from other nations. Look again at Isaiah 52, 15. It says that Christ did all this, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Christ did not die just for people that look exactly like you. He died to ransom people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's why we care so much about global missions. That's why we prayed for the Dabongo in India earlier. That's why we want people from every ethnic, language, culture, people group to hear this good news about the suffering, risen, glorified Christ. It's so that Christ can receive the full reward of his suffering. This is always the pattern in the world. Suffering leads to glory. Christ suffered on the cross, and that led to the glory of his resurrection and his worship among the nations. And this is the pattern in our life, too. Like Christ, we must suffer in Christ before we receive true glory. So do you want to lead a glorious life? The path to glory is a path of righteous suffering for Christ. We must evangelize boldly, and when we do so, we will be rejected, and we will suffer by losing friendships or being thought weird, but that leads to the glory of seeing people come to Christ in faith. Some of us have friends who are not Christians that we have not shared the gospel with because we love their respect more than we love God, because we love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And you might be thinking that you don't even know how to start a conversation with someone that you've literally known for years and have never talked about this good news with. Well, here's one way to do it. Find that person this week, the person that the Lord's already put in your mind. Find them this week or call them and say to them, I need to apologize to you because I have an important message from the Bible that I think you need to hear, but I haven't shared it with you because I was scared that you wouldn't like it. Will you forgive me, and can I share it with you now? I'm I'm totally serious. We need to apologize to our non-believing neighbors and co-workers and friends. That will show them the seriousness of this message. And it doesn't matter if the world rejects us, because we love the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from man. Suffering leads to glory. If the whole world abandons you, Christ holds you. Suffering leads to glory. The same thing happens in our homes. Husbands especially, we have a responsibility to serve our wives sacrificially. That requires us denying our own pleasures and our own desires to be respected or to be comfortable. And we will suffer when we deny ourselves. But that leads to the glory of showing a picture of Christ and his church to the world around us. Suffering leads to glory. Some of you need to completely change the trajectory of your life. 
forsaking your desires to have a nice career or comfortable finances or a nice house in order to go and proclaim Christ where he has never been named among the nations. Remember, Christ died to sprinkle many nations, and there are thousands of nations, ethnic language, language people groups, who have never heard this good news. If you accept the call to missions, you will suffer, but that suffering will lead to glory, namely people from every tribe, tongue, and nation praising Christ for endless days. Why wouldn't you want to give your life to that? Suffering leads to glory. Christ's rejection leads to his crucifixion. Christ's crucifixion, in a beautifully backwards way, leads to his glory. And Christ's glorification leads to our fourth and final event, Christ believed. Those who look to the crucified and risen Lord find life in his name. Let's jump back to John chapter 12. Look at verses 44 and following. And Jesus cried out and said, this is the end of the book of signs. This is Jesus' summary of everything that he's accomplished so far. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light, that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Whoever believes in Christ knows God and sees God. If you want to know God, you have to know Christ. If you want to see God, you have to see Christ. If you want to believe in God, you have to believe in Christ. If you want to follow God, you have to follow Christ. He is not one of many paths to God. He is the only way to God. And that's because Christ lived the perfect life that we have not lived. He died the death we deserve to die. And he rose victoriously and gloriously over death. And when we trust in him, his righteousness, his goodness is gifted to us. And we're raised up with him. But that means trusting Christ alone for salvation. Rather than your own good deeds or religious activity. So notice here that Christ is, describes this belief as sight or light from the darkness. Earlier in verse 40, he talked about unbelief as a blindness. And the solution to that blindness is presented here in verses 45, to look to Christ. In John's gospel, we've heard about Christ giving sight to the physically blind. And today in our passage, when someone comes to faith in Christ, the spiritually blind are being healed. Now think about that image of spiritual blindness. If someone was physically blind, could you ever imagine going up to them and be like, bro, like, just open your eyes. Like, just do it. Like, fix it. Just like, just try harder. I can't believe you can't see. We're laughing because it's crazy. We would never say that to a blind person unless we were the worst person in the world. But that's how we often treat spiritual blindness. People think that they can just have enough spiritual experiences or perform enough good deeds to earn their way into heaven. And friends, that's about as useless as a blind man opening his eyes wider. It's completely fruitless. Your good works will never be good enough because they're always covered in sin. 
Your only hope is to look to the risen Christ and have him open your eyes, to have him give you life, have him save you from your sin, have him take you from the darkness to the light. And Jesus goes on to explain that not everyone will believe in him. Many will refuse him and remain in their blindness. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. If someone does not follow Christ, they are dead in their sin. And Christ, in verse 47, he says that he doesn't judge the person who doesn't keep his word. That's not because that person doesn't have judgment hanging over them, but because they're already judged by their failure to conform to the word that he has spoken. And so each of you here today will now be held accountable for the things that you've heard today. You will be held accountable for your response to the Son of God. Will you trust him as Savior and submit to him as Lord, or will you stubbornly remain in your own path? And it sounds like, well, there's the end of enjoyment of life. If I come to Christ, and then he's the king, and I don't get to be the king anymore. But he describes it as coming from darkness to light. And that's good news. See, salvation isn't just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's actually God who doesn't just ignore our sin, but he actually deals with it. He gets his hands dirty with all of our mess and junk, and he's working to clean it up. He died to forgive us, and now he's working in all of our lives to heal us. Do you see the point here? Christianity is not for people who have cleaned themselves up. Christianity is for the messy, broken people like me who need God to do the cleaning, who need God to heal the blindness, who need God to soften the hearts, who need God to raise the dead. And that can be you today, friend. You need to look to the rejected, crucified, glorified Christ and believe in him. Repent of your rejection of Christ. Admit that you've lived for your kingdom instead of his. Trust in the crucified Christ. Believe that he was pierced for your transgressions, that he purchased your forgiveness, and by his grace live for his glory as you believe in Christ alone for life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. We pray that it would fall on fertile soil, that we would believe your word, that we would treasure your word, that we would trust your word, and that we would, in looking to your word, would see your son. God, we pray that Christ would be high and lifted up in our hearts today. God, I pray that we would love him dearly enough to lay down our lives, to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. God, for those here that don't know you, I pray that they would put their faith in your son and trust in you and be saved. God, I pray that you would call people out of our congregation to go to the ends of the earth to share this good news with people that will never hear it. I pray that you would send workers into the harvest to glorify your son who sprinkled many nations with his blood. May he receive the full reward of his suffering. May all of his chosen people be gathered in today. 
God, we thank you that while your son was rejected, he will always accomplish his purposes. And it's in that hope and it's for his name that we pray. Amen.